Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. And to give honor to God who has given us his holy word, we'll stand as we read Philippians 3, starting at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Verse 1, Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. Uh, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is by the law, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Our glorious Lord, we pray that you would work in and through your Holy Spirit to give us a greater assurance that you are our God, the God of our salvation, and that you have given us that righteousness that comes alone through Jesus Christ our Lord. And through that, we pray that you would help us to bear forth good works, as Paul has mentioned here, that we would be conformed even to the death of your Son and his likeness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> when I first became a Reformed Presbyterian, I was so excited about a sermon that I heard that I wanted to share it with some of my Roman Catholic family. So I shared it with my oldest sister, and I shared it with my grandmother. And it came from this passage in John uh, 19.30. The last words of Jesus, just before Jesus bowed his head and gave up the Spirit, the last thing he said was, it is finished. So what I related to them was that I heard in a sermon that the Greek word here, to telestai, was often written at the bottom of a bill. And when you wrote that word at the bottom of the bill, 
it could be used in a way of understanding it, paid in full. So if someone's bill was paid in full, they would write tetelestai. So that when Jesus said this on the cross, he said, it, it is finished, it is paid in full. And I share with my family that Christ paid for all of our sins, past, present, and even future. Well, the Roman Catholic reply from my family was, if that's true, you could live any way that you want. If Christ has already forgiven you, you could just live with abandon, do whatever you want, and don't care. Um, it's kind of like that claim uh, you've heard people say, um, you could sin so that grace would abound. But Paul deals with that in, in uh, Romans 6, that you know people can't go around saying that I'm going to sin so grace abounds. Um, but I, imagine if I told my family, well, Jesus not only paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future, but that Jesus obeyed the law for me, and that his obedience, his righteousness, is accounted as my own on that day of judgment. How much more would they have said, now you really are a person who's going to live with abandon because you don't have to even do anything because Christ not only paid for your sin, but he, he's obeyed the law for you. So what you, why would you even do anything for Christ? But that's some of the accusation against what you call the, the true gospel. In other words, it's a question for us today as well. If Christ, by what we call his active and passive passive obedience and active obedience, if he's done the full, complete work of salvation for us, why do we have to do anything? Why do we have to work on sanctification? Why do we have to endeavor after good works if Christ has done it all? And I hope to answer that tonight in this topical sermon, which is largely going to use a lot of the Shorter Catechism and Westminster Confession of Faith. And again, I have notes for you tonight, but um, the main focus, the main focus is that Christ's work for our salvation is complete. His work for our salvation is complete, yet God still requires of us good works, our own good works. And we'll see this in two main points. Christ's work for our justification. And then secondly, our good works in our sanctification. Let's look at this first main point. Christ's work for our justification. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is an act of God. It is a legal declaration wherein a believer is declared as pardoned, forgiven, but also declared as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed, which is accounted, reckoned, considered to be on the believer's record by faith in Christ. Again, it's a complete act of God. It happens at a moment. It is complete, and it happens exactly when a believer has that saving faith in Jesus. That's when it's accomplished. And once a believer places that saving faith in Christ, it's done. It's, it's 
an act. Now, <clears throat> Christ completed for our salvation something that theologians like to call his passive and active obedience. And it's important to note those two divisions of what Christ has done. And I have a little definition in your notes here from Dr. J. Gresham Machen, the founder of our denomination. And he distinguishes between these two in a fine message called The Act of Obedience of Christ. And in that message, he wrote this. By his, that is Christ's, passive obedience, that is, by suffering in our stead, he paid the penalty for us. That's his passive obedience. By his active obedience, that is, by doing what the law of God required, he has merited for us the reward. Okay? That's the overview definition of what is the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, I want to read you some of this message I didn't want to have all this in the notes because it's kind of lengthy, but he goes on to tell us that because of the active and the passive obedience of Christ, we are in a better state now through salvation in Christ than Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, and he'll, he'll go through some of this. He says, if Christ had merely or only paid the penalty of sin for us and had done nothing more, we should be at best back in the situation in which Adam found himself when God placed him under the covenant of works. And what's the covenant of works? God demanding of us perfect personal and perpetual obedience. That's the covenant of works. And he goes on to say that covenant of works was a probation. If Adam kept the law of God for a certain period, he was to have eternal life. If he disobeyed, he was to have death. Well, he disobeyed. And the penalty of death was inflicted upon him and his posterity, that is, his descendants by ordinary generation. Uh, that's what I added there, descendants by ordinary generation. Then Christ, by his death on the cross, paid the penalty for those whom God had chosen. But if that were all that Christ did for us, do you not see that we should be back in the situation in which Adam was in before he sinned? The penalty of his sin would have been removed from us because it had been paid by Christ. But for the future, the attainment of eternal life would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. We should simply have been back in the probation again. As a matter of fact, he, was not, he has not merely paid for the penalty of Adam's first sin and the penalty of sins which we individually have committed, but also he has positively merited for us eternal life. He was, in other words, our representative both in penalty paying and in probation keeping. He paid the penalty of sin for us, and he stood the probation for us. That is the reason why those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus are in a far more blessed condition than Adam before he fell. Adam before he fell was righteous in the sight of God, but was still under the possibility 
of becoming unrighteous. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, this is the elect, the probation is over. Okay, so Adam was under a period of probation. Do this and you shall live. But for us, the probation of period is over. Jesus not only forgave us of our failure, of our sin, he forgave us of the original sin and our actual sins, but Jesus fulfilled the probation, which is perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, namely what we would call the covenant of works. Jesus did that in his act of obedience. Dr. Machen goes on to say that you can't really separate the passive and active of obedience. It kind of intermingled. But it helps us to kind of think about the distinction between these two. We cannot add any of our works to Christ's completed work for our justification at all. In other words, what Christ has done for our justification, we cannot add to that. That's why Paul says this in Philippians 3, 4 and following. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was righteous and as far as the law was concerned. But then he counts all of that as rubbish in light of the Christ's gospel. Paul here taught of what they call this imputed righteousness by faith when he wrote that his greatest desire was to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the gospel this gospel of the passive and active obedience of Christ, this is the gospel that was rediscovered by the Reformers, especially by Martin Luther and many others during the Reformation. So that is Christ's work, completed work for our justification. Now let's look at God's works in our sanctification, or God's working in us, our good works for our sanctification. Um, what is sanctification, first of all? Westminster Shorter Catechism 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, it's called a work. It's not an act. Remember, justification is an act. It happens immediately when we have saving faith. This is an ongoing work that goes on, you could say, for the rest of our life until, one, we either die, or two, Christ returns. Now, because it says here it's a work of God's free grace, it is through the Holy Spirit. Any growth in sanctification, you really can't count yourself as being the one who's really accomplished it accomplish this, this work of sanctification because this is the work of God through His Holy Spirit. It's a work of God's free grace. Now, the bad news is, is that when we sin and we fall, we, we're the ones that need to take credit of that, but when we grow in grace and sanctification, God is the one that should take the credit because it's His work. 
It goes on and says that sanctification is a process of being renewed in the whole man after the image of God and being enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. I have a firm belief that the process of sanctification is also very parallel with good works. When we bear good works, we are growing in sanctification. When we're growing in sanctification, we bear good works, and vice versa, okay? I want you to turn to the back of your hymnals to page uh, 927. And we're going to look at the chapters concerning sanctification. We're not going to read all of this, but... So nine, page 927. I'm only going to read sections 2 and 3. It says that this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. This is best illustrated in Paul's struggle with covetousness and sin mentioned in Romans chapter 7. It goes on to say that in the sanctification, which it describes as a war, section 3, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time, may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay, so sanctification, you have to keep in mind, will never be perfect. Sanctification will always be a war. Sanctification, though, for the true believer, even though it says that there's a time where it can even, corruption can prevail for a time, in the end, a true believer will grow in grace, but still it's, it's imperfect. Okay, so now we're going to skip to Good Works, um, chapter 16, that's pages 928 and following. Now, I'm going to use some of my, my notes here, and you have these in your notes as well, and we're not looking at all the sections, just portions of each section. Section 1. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof, are devised by men, out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. So, it's not a good work when the Roman Catholic Church tells their clergy and the nuns they have to be celibate. Now, they think that's a good work. They think that's a holy work, but it's actually contrary to Scripture. If a person has a desire, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, that it's better to marry than burn with passion. And what are you doing taking people who have desires and telling them? And I had a, a Roman a Catholic priest tell my friend this, who had a desire to get married, who had a desire to have a family. He said, it's not what you want, it's what God wants. So 
you desire a relationship with a, a woman, you desire to be a father, you desire to be a, a husband, have family, but it's not what you want, it's what God wants, therefore you need to be celibate. In other words, they're telling him that he's got to do a good work, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's good intentions there, Well, you, but it's, it's actually the doctrine of the devil, isn't it? You're telling people to do something contrary to the Word of God. You could say blind zeal. It's the doctrine devised by men. But it's not just this one thing. You know, there are other people who might say that there's, uh, there's other things that you have to do as a good work, um, which it's not according to holy, the Holy Scriptures. Section 2. These good works done in obedience to God's commands, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree bears good fruit. If you have a lively faith, the lively faith will produce good works. It's the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So the logic goes like this. Maybe if one's life is totally void of, of good works, then maybe we need a stronger, more lively faith. Or if you have a person who's a professing Christian and they have absolutely no good works to show of, no growth in grace, no sanctification, and they live exactly like the world, then you could say that they have no lively faith. It's a dead faith. Here are the reasons why it goes on. It says here in this section 2, there are reasons why believers bear such good works. By them, by the good works, believers manifest their thankfulness. They show God that they're thankful. They strengthen their assurance. They edify their brethren. They adorn the profession of the gospel. They stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. It's the same thing Paul mentions here in this passage in Philippians 3. Knowing the power of his resurrection, having the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's Paul growing in sanctification, Paul growing in good works, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice here, it's absolutely key. Our good works adorn the profession of the gospel. Our good works do not add to the gospel. Our good works do not add to the work of Christ. Our good works do not add to what Christ has already accomplished in full for the believer. I was at a time in a church, visiting a, a church in uh, New York, actually. I'm not going to mention where, but a pastor told me, he said, confessing Christ before men and enduring to the end, these are good works that we add to Christ's work to be saved. I said, well, why don't you look at Matthew 7, 17? At these enduring to the end, confessing Christ before men, 
why can't we look at that as fruits of a true and lively faith that it's a good tree, you're a good tree, one is a good tree bearing good fruit when you confess Christ before men. You're a good tree bearing good fruit when you're enduring to the end. His answer was, ah, that's preposterous. Bye-bye, later, I'm not going to see you anymore, you know. And that's what happened. I had to cut off ties with the, with those uh, uh, quasi. Um, they claim to be quasi reformed um, Presbyterian. You cannot add to the complete finished work of Christ. These works adorn the profession of the gospel. Section three. It says for the believer. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. That's where I get the similarity between sanctification and good works. Both are from the Spirit of Christ. So we don't beat upon our chest and say, look at me and my good works and the wonderful things that I've done for Christ and His kingdom. No, it's it's not our it's not it's not of us, it's from the Holy Spirit that enables us. It's wholly from the Spirit of Christ. Section five. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. And part of this is due to the some of the Catholic doctrine that a uh, a very holy person, such as a monk, can do not only what is required of them by committing certain good works, but they can get they can super arrogate and come up with a even more good works so that when they die, there's a there's a treasury of merit that people can go and pray before the saints and have this treasury of merit of good works because some of these people did more than what God expected. Well, what does Jesus say? When you've done everything that you're supposed to do, at best, you are an unprofitable servant. Wow. Let that hit you. And at, at best, at best, we're still unprofitable servants. We can't super arrogate and do above and beyond what God expects of us. But this is a beautiful section, section six. Not that it's, it's all beautiful, but section six I love Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. So that the Father looking upon them, that is, upon our good works, in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Our best good works are always accompanied with weaknesses and imperfections. But just as God the Father accepts us through the person of His Son, through the blood of His Son, through the the righteous, active and passive obedience of His Son, Jesus and His perfect work is completed for us, but the Father accepts our good works that we do because of Christ. Christ makes our good works acceptable before the Father. I've heard of an illustration before of 
like somebody bringing flowers, um, if you're presenting flowers uh, to God, you know, they're all imperfect and they're all withered, but Christ makes them beautiful and perfect and acceptable in the sight of God. And he, he, he takes what is imperfect and he takes what is marred with weakness and imperfection and he makes it beautiful and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. So again, as we look at this passage from Philippians, we look at the, the Charter Catechism, we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, Christ's work for our justification in his passive and active obedience is complete. His passive obedience is his suffering for our sins, his paying the penalty for our sins, his, his being the Lamb of God slain for our sins. His active obedience is his obeying the law for us perfectly so that we like, pass the probation. The, so that requirement of the covenant of works of perfect, perfect personal perpetual obedience, that is already done for us in Christ. So that's why we have the active and passive obedience as the complete work of Christ. But he still says... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And keeping his commandments is part of the good works of sanctification and growing more and more in hating sin and growing more and more in holiness, that process of sanctification, which is also our bearing forth good works. Our good works are not added to anything that Christ has already accomplished for us. It's an adornment of the gospel. It adorns it like a necklace or a, a beautiful ring on, on one's hand. It is something that does not add at all to the complete work of Christ, but it shows forth our thankfulness and praise God that even though our best good works still tainted with sin, God accepts them in the same way that he accepts us through his Son. He accepts our good works through the mediation of Christ and makes them acceptable to the Father. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for this, your holy word. And we pray that you would help us, like Paul, to have that righteousness, not of our own, but that which is through faith in Christ, that righteousness which comes from you, O God, on the basis of faith through the perfect work of your Son. And help us to be those who shine as lights for your kingdom, who are zealous for good works that you have prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world. And help us, we pray, that you would accept our works in and through Christ and that you would guide and lead us in the way that we should go and how we should live. And help us, we pray, to grow in this area of holiness and sanctification. For we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For a hymn of dedication, let's turn to 457. 457, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, and we'll stand and sing 457.